Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell. Our previous episode on Alexander Dugan's The Fourth Political Theory ended a little early, and we didn't finish discussing the whole book. Hence, we're back for round two. If you haven't already listened to the first episode on The Fourth Political Theory, then I suggest you do so before listening to this one, as everything we say here will make slightly more sense for you that way. So, as Jared Leto said in his starring role in the Hollywood adaptation of Alexander Dugan's autobiography, it's Duganing time. Enjoy. Alright, we're back after a break. Back to talk about a bit more Dugan. We're getting into the territory of the fourth political theory where he starts getting much stranger. Up to this point, it's been something of a grounded, and I say grounded quite loosely, but relative to many of the things we read for this podcast, a grounded geopolitical take. However, we're now at the point where he starts getting very Heideggerian and very strange. And I'd like to illustrate this with a quote from the chapter, The Reversibility of Time. He has this, this profound sense of cultural relativism, which we can discuss this later on in the episode. He deploys when convenient and forgets about when it comes time to advocate for Russia invading Ukraine. But he also holds a, a sense of relativism of time and not, not time relativity in the sense of Albert Einstein, but time relativity in the sense that different cultures have different senses of time. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it. It's kind of hard to steal, man. So I quote, Time is a social phenomenon. Its structures don't depend upon object characters, but, on, but upon the domination of social paradigms, because the object is assigned by society itself. In modern society, time is seen as irreversible, progressive, and unidirectional. But this is not necessarily true inside societies that do not accept modernity. In some societies, without a strict modern conception of time, cyclic and even regressive conceptions of time exist. Therefore, political history is considered in the topography of plural conceptions of time for the fourth political theory. There are as many conceptions of time as there are societies. This is the sort of statement where I feel like I could half begin to steel man it, but also Seems not. What do you make of that? this bridge between human thought and ontology that <clears throat> I don't understand <laughs> why, why he... Uh, he thinks that uh, the human mind, well, this must be something to do with phenomenology, uh, but like why the human mind or subjective experience can have direct, direct access to, to ontology. And I, I don't agree with that and I don't know how I would still man it and I don't know enough about the philosophical background to be able to see a pathway forward without just like, just asserting that there is without explaining. I could give my, my steel man is not going to be steel. It might be pig iron at best, but may, maybe, <laughs> maybe he's saying that different societies, and I think this is the case, members of those societies or cultures might have different subjective experiences of time to those of others. So, for example, in Western countries, 
our experience of time is very much as a resource. It's this thing that you need to use well, and it's something that you can use to be productive and generate things. But that's not necessarily the case. And historically, that's not, that hasn't really been a very common way to view the passage of time. Yeah, or you could be You could go from that if you're getting super Heideggerian and say that because it's your subjective, and this is what you were saying about the link between subjectivity and ontology, one's being, I guess if you were a full-on Heidegger Kool-Aid drinker, you could say that that actually implies affecting the the very being of time. But then again, I say that, and Dugan in other parts of this book seems to flat out deny that time has any objective existence outside of the, the human subjectivity. Which, look, I don't know much about physics, and modern physics gets really weird really quickly, but at least as far as I'm aware, time is factored into at least how how people seem to think the world Maybe works you could be at the moment. Well, I mean, the most I could still man him with is like things like your our uh, cultural relationship with time, as you were saying. Um, even things like uh, in countries where they have like well-defined, well-measured time. You know, like I don't know, like a culture that maybe hasn't. You know, like if you went back a few hundred years ago, like reliable clocks, you know, like your sense of uh, the divisibility of time, that sort of stuff might be different. And then also like historical narratives about like. Different cultures having different explanations. But there seems to be a jump from that to, well, those cultures having those explanations or those relationships actually makes their claims to be true in and of itself. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier. I think the the problem both of us are having is that neither of us acknowledge that because something is subjectively experienced, that makes it true ex- external to a human being or that that we we yeah, even care about something being mind. true external to a human being is maybe a point of divergence and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and would they or would they also be talking about um how do they if 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 the world including something as fundamental as time is generated ontologically through the subjectivity of like a culture or an ethnos or something then was there a point at which, so that, like, what came first in existence? <laughs> so, or is that just a question that should be asked about these sorts of things? It's hard to say. <laughs> it's also, I mean, he might say that it's because you're approaching this from a Western scientific standpoint that you demand, you, you demand this sort of question to be answered. I'm not sure. Like, I, when, it's not just me trying to set up a discussion when I say that I'd like to I'd like this explained <laughs> because I genuinely just don't really understand what he's talking about. I have a feeling it's him being Heideggerian, but because my knowledge of Heidegger is pretty bad, then I I don't know. I don't know. 
If, <laughs> to, to clarify things <laughs> further, how about we, we go on to chapter six, the ontology of the future, where he talks about time even more and manages to make less sense. This is part of the book where it just turns into word salad. It is just pure verbal diarrhea. Lines that maybe will clarify slightly what we we're just talking about um, in this chapter. He says, uh, this is the methodological key for understanding of history. History is awareness of the presence of the past in the present. I hate that so much when I read that. <laughs> um, what is the most important in this interpretation of morphology of time? The idea that the time precedes the object and the root of time we should seek in inner depth of consciousness and on the outer things constituted by subjective procedure of the traumatic self-experience. The world around us becomes what it is by the fundamental action of presencing, presencing accomplished by mind. If a mind sleeps, the reality lacks the taste of present existence. It is fully immersed in the continuous and interrupted dream. The world is created by time, and the time in its turn is the manifestation of the self-encountering subjectivity. Do you know do you know what to make of that? <laughs> okay, so let's let's back up a moment. He's like he opens up this chapter by saying, Okay, you, your sense of time is divided into the past, the present, and the future. To which if you were a good temporal relativist, I guess you'd call it, you'd say, why are you dividing it into those things? Why aren't you dividing into six different things or just a continuous present? I'm not sure. This is one of the things that irritates me as an aside about people who run to relativism as a security blanket or as a way to avoid discussing anything. Inevitably, they do actually make all sorts of firm statements. They just never dress them up as anything that could be discussed in a relativistic sense. They're always the firm truths. And apart from those things, everything else is relative, especially what the person they're talking to believes. Okay, so you've, you've divided time up into these things. And he, has, he uses this metaphor of, of music where he's like, okay, the past, the past doesn't exist anymore, but it... It is continuously informing the present. We understand what is happening in the present because of the context provided by the past. And I was still not going to say I was on board, but this seemed somewhat sensible. And he used the example of, of music. He said, okay, well, in music, the note you're currently hearing makes sense in the context of the notes that have preceded it. And then the future is something which doesn't exist outside of the the cultural context and the subjectivity of the person experiencing the past and the present. So it's sort of a projection. The, the future exists as an imagined world that could come in the future. And that also seems, all right, your sense of the future is subjective. I guess that's all right by Dugan's standards. Then he goes into, into phenomenology, describing why it was necessary for us to create a future and just goes off the planet. Like <laughs> I'll read out a quote. So basically, we create the future because of the trauma of experiencing ourselves as beings within time. So he says... 
The time is necessary to hide the present, which is the traumatic, traumatically experience of the auto-referency of the pure consciousness. Intentionality and logical judgments are all rooted in this evasion of the consciousness from the pain of the void present in which the consciousness is presented to itself. Such an attitude to the levels of consciousness explains the genesis of time as the evasion from the present and unbearable tension of pure presence to the same. The tension is immediately relieved by the expansion in all imaginable kinds of the dualities that constitute the textures of the continuous processes. The model of all this process is the three moments time. The logical and spatial symmetries follow. The couples yes-no, true-false, high-low, right, left, here, there, and so on, before after belongs to the same cadence. The consciousness constitutes the time running from unbearable meeting with itself, but this meeting is inevitable, so the present and its high precision of existential perception is born. I should also say the translation gets a lot rougher in this chapter. I think that because later in the book he talks a lot about how these dualities, like say, present and past, left, right, male, female, etc., all come from Dasein in some way being shrouded from the, the subjectivity. So my guess is that Dasein has something to do with time, something to do with a perception of time that isn't shrouded by these dualities or by in the in the case of past present future by this tripartite division but it's this trauma of dasein as a being experiencing itself or with an a being with an auto-referential subjectivity that makes it make divisions of time and in doing so relieves it of the trauma of experience Look, I'm I'm really stretching here. I don't really know what he's talking about. Or I can follow the words. I just think it's completely arbitrary. It's just you ask, well, why? Why is it traumatic for for some being to experience itself as an experiencing agent and therefore it invents time? <laughs> I just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh, I I struggled with... Uh, I was. I'm not sure if he's trying to make sense. Is he trying to make sense? I think he is because he's. A, he seems to have written a lot of books like this, and a lot. When I say like this, I don't mean like fourth political theory, which is relatively grounded and concrete. But he's written plenty of books on much more metaphysical topics. He's written an entire book on the concept of time. I think he is. He is sincerely trying to communicate how he regards time and then where this book gets fun is he'll he uses these metaphysics as a justification for waging war against the west seeing the the interface between the the wacky metaphysics wherein Dasein's innate trauma of experiencing itself as an experiencing agent leads to its creation of time the interface between that and resisting american hegemony is is where the magic uh, of this book comes a, from. There's a quote here. Um, it says uh, the history. This might get on to help explain his um, I suppose nationalism. <laughs> um, 
Uh, the histories of different societies are different, exactly as different are the pieces, musicians, the compositors, the instruments, the musical genre, and all the other kinds of notations. That is why the humanity as whole cannot have a future. It has no future. So it's like rejecting the whole, whole earth humanity. Mm, a, mon a monotonic um, future. The future of humanity is quite senseless because it's a monotonic, uh, globalised future. Because it lacks for completely the semantic value, the sense that every society is separate fact is a separate fact of the consciousness expanded in the rational and the temporal horizons. All is strictly super individual and open. But before hearing the real history of concrete society, we should immerse in the depths of its identity. The fact that every people, every culture, every society has its own history turns time into a local phenomenon. Every society possesses its own temporality. All moments, if it are, if if they are different, past, present, and future, the societies can cross and intersect. Their historical senses cannot cross and intersect. The senses are local. The common sense is possible only on the base of the seizure of one society over another society and imposing its own history on the enslaved one. Yeah, and this very much ties into his idea of multipolarity. It's like he's just trying to say, like, hey, there's other perspectives other than the American perspective. And he's really grieved that, that like... Um, say the soviet union i suppose like potentially fell or like whatever marginalization he sees of russia as a country or maybe as like an ethnic group <clears throat> and instead of just kind of advocating for like hey russians are like have much right to <laughs> you know express their desires and stuff in a geopolitical context he's just like gone full like uh he's got this like crazy uh, metaphysical worldview yeah, <laughs> to yes. like say something that might not actually be that objectionable. <laughs> Aspects of it I would find unobjectionable. The issue is it because even in 2012 he was advocating for an invasion of Ukraine. Well, that's so his relativism about how okay, so every ethnos, yeah. every people should be able to self determine without interference. They fundamentally can't understand each other and shouldn't be forced to and should be left on their way. That falls apart as soon as Russia's political goals come, and particularly its expansionist political goals, come into play. Granted, I'm yes. sure Dugan would say, well, Ukraine is of the Russian ethnos and is indivisibly a part of Russia. But the fact that thousands and thousands of Ukrainians are willing to fight and die to prevent that happening would say otherwise. Or flee. How many millions flee? Yeah, that says it's to me like that maybe they don't want to be part of Russia, or at least a significant portion of that population doesn't want to. And he's, he's still a fanboy for the yeah. Russian invasion. So aspects and, aspects and of what he's saying what about, about the, resisting um, american or more broadly western cultural hegemony i agree with i think that oftentimes when i'm feeling uncharitable when i hear so okay for example when americans come to czech republic a common complaint i hear is ah yeah. oh, it's not diverse here because yeah the country is very very heavily white majority I mean, one thing there are, even is like a specific. Well, they uh, they view like, diversity as different skin colors. Like in terms of linguistic diversity, like, yeah, there, like different. there are a lot of Slovakians, Poles, Germans, Austrians, yeah. Hungarians, Bulgarians, Ukrainians at the moment, Russians. And even there's like Bohemia versus like the other half of 
isn't there like Bohemia? There's like a couple of major like yeah, parts. There's, of there's Bohemia, Czech Moravia, and, <laughs> and Silesia. You know, different histories like, and stuff. The difference between Bohemia and Moravia yeah. is just an accent, except for Huntets, which I can barely understand. That that's actually different. Silesians speak this weird <laughs> half Polish, half Czech thing, which I also have a kind of hard time understanding. Or they also speak Czech. So there's that, but. When I hear a lot of Americans complaining that Czech Republic is not diverse, what I hear is it is not like America. So what they want is actually other countries to resemble America in the racial makeup. In its position. Yeah, in its political composition, in its racial composition. Yeah. Even in things like, oh, they want all the same foods that they can get in America. They'll complain that they can't get as good Mexican food. And it's like, yeah, no shit, dude. It doesn't border Mexico. If that's it's in the, the fucking middle of, of Europe. coming to another country, why are they, why are they traveling? Yeah. So, <laughs> like, the, the, like a huge reason why you travel is to like see different ways of living. And stuff. Yeah. And I, before I alienate the American portion of our listener base, when I say Americans, this is a particular type of American. It tends to be like coastal left wing who will complain that a place is insufficiently diverse. That is to say, insufficiently like America and makes them feel comfortable and at home. So when Dugan talks about resisting American cultural hegemony, I, if I'm being charitable, will interpret it as that. He wants to push against the Americanization of places that aren't America. And okay, fine. Like I wouldn't want an entire world of America. I like America. I like going there, but I don't want the entire globe to be that. So that's good. However, (laughs) that is probably like the Venn diagram between what I'm saying there and what Dugan is saying in this book, the overlap is probably quite small, like in, in multiple directions, as in my justifications for feeling that way and Dugan's justifications, his Heideggerian justifications for feeling that way are quite different. He sort of comes at things from a pretty strange perspective. Yeah, exceptionally strange. (laughs) Probably one of the strangest perspectives I've ever read, actually. (laughs) Yeah, so here we go. So another reason why the future is necessary. So you've got this trauma of a subjectivity encountering itself, Dasein. He says that the future exists as a necessity because Dasein is this future-facing project it's constantly striving and running forwards into the future and therefore the future must exist to allow it to be future oriented so that's another justification by dugan as to why societies create the future i still think wouldn't a more just a prosaic description of why societies or human beings in general have a concept of the future is just that we have an experience of the passage of time. Like, you can say empirically, well, in my experience, there is the present moment and now it is in the past. And I've, I've in some way moved or things have changed. And given that this always happens, I can predict that it's going to continue happening. And from that, you develop a sense of the future. Your sense of the future doesn't arise from some existential trauma, but it arises from the fact that Mm. you always seem to be in this state of change and you can always feel that your present moment is now in the past and something new has taken its place. 
and you could in some way say, okay, well, wherever these new moments taking the place of the old come from, that is the future. So he does say, fortunately, that he's not claiming that human beings can just invent the future, create something wholly new as separate from, say, physical reality. He's not saying that you can throw a rock in the air and then decide that it's going to continue ascending through the air and into space and just keep going like that forever. It's going to come down and fall to the earth, no matter your cultural context. And where is it? I've got a quote here. Yeah, here we go. He says, The subjectivity of time doesn't mean that any prognostic will be self-fulfilled prophecy, nor that any project is realisable a priori. The future is strictly determined and is not something voluntary. The time being historical is predefined precisely by its historical content. The subject is not free from its structure. More than that, it is absolutely enslaved by it. The time needs the future as the void space for the continuous vanishing of the present and partly of the past. If the future lacks the subject will not have the space to evade, to run from the impossible encounter with itself, from the short circuit mentioned above. The frozen moment of the present without the future is that of death. And it, it feels like he's saying something that is fairly intuitive here, that no matter what you believe about, the, about time and the passage of time, no matter your subjective experience of time, it, it is still passing around you and the world will continue to act according to physical laws independently of your subjectivity. And that makes me wonder then, so is he just saying that different cultures have different subjective experiences of time and he's saying that they create the past, present and future more as a statement of they interpret themselves as a subjectivity within history differently. I suppose so. That could be one one interpretation. I suppose if you're taking it for like phenomenology to I well if you read phenomenology like that, like why don't you just take it all the way to solipsism? And why do you even have an aggregate thing like a ethnic uh mm. like collective entity of some sort, like or culture. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, he doesn't go that far. But like the uh, phenomenological experience of time is informed strongly by your by your culture, but it doesn't become entirely solipsistic. Yeah, like, which uh, he also solipsism. subscribes to. Yeah, or. Like, it's, he, he talks right. about how no culture can truly understand any other culture and that they're all completely self-contained. He does, though, then talk about other cultures as if he does have insight into them, which is why it's the case with almost anyone who talks about this sort of relativism is almost invariably they ascribe to themselves some special knowledge which allows them to talk about other cultures or other groups' interpretation of time and things like that with some sort of authority which they afford to no one else. Yeah. In fact, actually, uh, he says a little bit further and he says, it is the moment to fight, to begin f fighting for the historical being of the people. This historical being is the time 
the sense of which is constituted subjectively. The sense can reside only in the society itself. The West cannot intersect with the sense of the other non-Western societies. The non-Western people cannot understand correctly the West and its values. They are in permanent error. They are in a state of permanent error in their thinking um, that they can. It is false. They cannot. But the Western people cannot understand the non-Western societies, the structures of the subjects, the time, the music are different, the past, the present, the future of the historical societies cannot be exposed by no metaculture. They are lying too deep and are defended from the foreign eyes by the destructive might of the auto-referential moment, by the bold <clears throat> of the greatest tension. What for the West is, for the other cultures is not. So we are dealing with different times always and with different futures. So we have come to the end of history and the globalization. Um, yeah, like... Uh, I guess yeah. Just as you're saying, like with a with a with a perspective that strong about the the alienation of one culture from the other, why is he pretending That's that he exactly understands the West why read this book? Given it. that previously in this book he's identified himself as a Russian, identified Russia as in opposition to the West and therefore not West, and then later presumes to talk about the West while also saying that no non-Westerner can understand the West. It's just not coherent. Is that some... So so somebody read and edited this book and even translated it into this book and not a single one of them... Apparently not. ...raises issue with him? I find... Interestingly, because I, I looked at different <laughs> discussions of like, Dugan around the web hmm. before recording this, and almost invariably in their analysis of this book, they leave out a lot of the weirdness... I'm not sure whether it's because they don't feel it's so relevant or because they didn't understand it, which is fair enough. I don't think it can be understood. Yeah, it's uh, it's an aspect of Dugan that makes him a lot less credible. Here's a, here's a quote. This is uh, I, I, I took down this quote because it is pure word salad. It might be the most word salad part of this entire book to give you a feeling of just how much the quality dips in these few chapters as compared to the beginning and the end of this text. So I quote, So we have come to the end of history and the globalisation. The end of history is the logical finalising of the universalism. The end of the history is the abolition of the future. The history proceeds and reaches its terminal state. There is no more space to go, to go on. So with future of all structure of time is abolished, not only future, but also the past and the present, how it can be possible. We could compare it with the simultaneous playing all existing notes, sounds, melodies that will give us cacophony, clanking and grinding of teeth. At the same time, it will provoke absolute silence, deafness and sourness. Hence, there will be no space for the temporalization of inattention of transcendental subjectivity. The short circuit would grow exponentially without possibility of being dissipated. That means the inflammation, the ignition, and fire. The same fire goes usually in pair with the sword. In order to prevent the ignition and the blow potentiated by the closing, the temporal and logical perspective of the relief, the global world will strive to trap the consciousness in the networks and the virtuality where it could run away from the inner pressure of self-encountering without issue. If it succeeded, the new world of the machine kingdom would be created. The global network and digital cyberspace are suitable only for the existence of post-humans, post-society, post-culture. Instead of fire, we will get the electricity. Some believe Fukuyama is already a robot. There you go. 
there you go. He's got this thing. So I, I can somewhat squint and see this as him saying that with liberalism becoming unopposed, becoming post-liberalism, and modernity becoming post-modernity, in which Dasein cannot, or being cannot experience itself as Dasein, and instead becomes a simulation, and because post-modernity destroys the conception of a future as it is the end of history, there is no sense of time anymore, which means there can be no sense of Dasein's project. So there is just, there, there is almost no being. There is just a simulation. He takes this and from that says that the only way that this could possibly develop is transhumanism. And basically people becoming robots, living more and more on the internet. And I don't say that as a metaphor. He keeps bringing up that a natural consequence of liberalism there is a a direct line to be drawn between John Stuart Mill and space marines, between us uploading our consciousness into robot bodies and, I don't know, being degenerate Western consumers, except now robots. He gets really weird in this part. And Francis Fukuyama's a robot. <laughs> yeah, he says the... <laughs> The West will uh, lose its own identity and turn into an automaton, or it will impose its history as a universal and everything else. And uh, we'll get a new type of planetary <laughs> concentration camp. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty um, binary. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, and it, it ties into his, his criticism of globalisation. He sees globalisation as neo or not neoliberalism post-liberalism and post-modernity destroying the futures of all other societies of universalizing and spreading over the entire world and he seems to see it as something that is impossible to stop he sees it as just having this this inevitability which can only be defeated by a fourth political theory which exists outside of any sort of paradigms based on modernity I do find it interesting to note, though, so his, one of his biggest criticisms, or maybe the, the reason why he thinks that the West and post-modernity need to be resisted so urgently is because they are totalizing, because they will leave no room for any other system of belief. Hypothetically, if the world were to become perfectly globalised, there were, there were to be perfect domination of culture by America if everything were to be postmodernist. If the fourth political theory were to come into existence as an alternative, would that re-legitimise post-liberalism? If his problem with post-liberalism is that there's no alternative, if the fourth political theory appeared and became an alternative, would post-liberalism be again a, an acceptable course to take? Would he undermine his own project through its realisation. I suppose that depends on the content of the fourth theory when it arises. Maybe it substantiates some sort of like new paradigm, post-post-liberalism, where it's, uh, it's, uh, it's okay. Because he doesn't like, how much does he talk about the content? Like he's, it's like he's trying to talk about the theory, a future theory in a very meta sense. 
without specifying its content. Just like oh, that's exactly what he's doing. It's structural characteristics. Yeah. So yeah, so like I suppose depending on the explicit content, it might support a way of like not having that. But who yeah. can tell? It and that was an interesting yet. part of the book. But <laughs> it's not specifying a concrete theory, but a framework within which to formulate a new theory. I thought that was quite interesting, and I quite liked that aspect. But also, it means that offering offering a yeah, there's some interest. A holistic view of everything he says is a bit hard because a lot of the time he'll just offer a suite of options or of suggestions as to how you would create the fourth political theory. Certain things like he, he was offering, okay, here's a selection of possible historical subjects the fourth political theory could take. And then the next chapter, he, without really explicitly saying, just assume that Darzine would be the historical subject of it. So he will make some concrete decisions. But yeah, anyway, it just it was an aside. I enjoyed that aspect yeah. of this, that it's him making a framework for a new belief yeah yeah it's interesting although like um it could just be something completely different yeah i'd say it's likely to be something different. <laughs> like, not not that i mean not that there's only four three in the first place but you know like <laughs> if there was a fourth major one to come along other than nationalism or i don't know i know some some new one yeah, obviously it could be something totally different, which is weird because he, 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 one of his axioms basically is just, yeah, we'll take um, like communism and uh, Nazism or communism and fascism, like in and of, like in the fact that they oppose liberalism, they have benefit and we can like pull out the benefits. But was, there was a point at which like maybe no theories like those had existed before <laughs> and they were just completely novel. Maybe, I don't know. Um, relatively speaking, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, new one could yeah. be very different. What about a non-structural fourth political theory that a swallows everything? Mm. Turns America into the rest of the world. <laughs> I think that's sort of what he's saying. Yeah, has no structure. He is, though, because he, he uses Deleuze's idea of, of the rhizome, which is a, a post-structuralist concept of basically this... This network where each node is connected to all other nodes and one input of information I think can have multiple outputs of meaning. And he that he takes this idea and then applies it to society and says, okay, this is what postmodernist society looks like. It's this unformed mass, so it doesn't have vertical differentiation, he says, only horizontal this unformed mass that can just spit out almost an endless number of interpretations or alternate meanings based on one input. So uh, he's he's talking about just a completely uh, think that the, unstructured political system, which is postmodernity. Do you think that the part of the reason why people like Dugan exists, but even maybe people like Evla or I don't know, I'm sure there's a bunch of people. Um, kind of fall into this different ways of basically like yelling at, I guess, the overwhelming complexity and like aspects of acceleration and stuff that the world seems to be heading towards. Like 8 billion people, you know, we just crossed 8 billion people 
And there is all this like linguistic and semantic diversity and new technologies and new science and old ideologies and ethnic groups are like going through all sorts of crazy stuff. And it is pretty crazy. And if you don't have like a structure for um, or some sort of um, framework through which to make sense of this, um, it could be uh, distressing if you think about it too much. (laughs) At least. So the people who complain about things like the un or de-differentiation of society and societies becoming rhizome-like and things like that almost inevitably are talking about their discomfort with the fact that hierarchies are, while I think still certainly present in the West, becoming less less obvious or not they they're not as ordered into say something like a caste system or an aristocratic feudal system the hierarchies are getting much more complex and much less concretely declared and oftentimes that strikes me as their main complaint like more decentralized yeah they want more like more regimentation yeah more vertical vertical orientation is the term often used whereas like we have large scale yeah 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 that's uh, yeah that's a good term. <laughs> um, like the large scale um, decentralized centers of power that we have, even in a country like Australia, I know I complain about the state all the time, but like there are fairly large scale, powerful other institutions that aren't direct state institutions that are like competing with one another or even in conflict. Um, and a good example being like some of the unions in Australia are pretty powerful, <laughs> you know. And have different, um, <clears throat> like different interests to them. maybe like some of the uh, classically the corporate, some of the large corporate centers of power. So within those particular like parts of society, there might be like vertical integration of the power structure. But then you have these kind of like fairly free form floating vertical structures that might have non congruent. Uh, interests in like the broader context of the uh <laughs> the rhizome <laughs> that is the australian political landscape um maybe i don't know maybe they don't yeah. like that at least in the context of dugan one thing he, he really doesn't like is the fact that we have no future in post-modernity like it just it just stops existing and we all turn into cyborgs i found another good quote which is is pretty bonkers i mean i'll ask what you make of it but i'm not sure how much you'll really be able to say he says the second option is globalization it cancels the future it requires the arrival of post-human it constructs post-world consisting of simulacra and virtual structures in place of transcendental subject dasein society becomes a huge computer center a matrix a supercomputer instead of time it double its doubles make appearance the doubles of the past present and future counterpart of the past is a false memory the product of artificial influence on the historical recalling blockade of the transcendental subject allows you to change the past as alternate video disc in player an alternate version of society could be loaded as prequel it is technically possible the substitution of the past sufficient control over the present allows it to be produced easily substitution of the future follows this manipulation Two disparate tracks mixed one with another produce the cacophonic repercussions in the future. 
future is stoned, the semantic of time blurs, forks, triplicates. To deal with the present is a little more complicated and sophisticated. To remove it, we should not simply block transcendental subjectivity, we must eradicate it. This presumes the transition from the human to the post-human. I mean, in parts, reading it over again, very concretely, he might be talking about how groups with modern technology are able to fabricate past events. Sure, I think that's definitely possible. Talking about how you can create a different future, maybe create a different sense of where society is going, if I'll steel man it, by changing people's information environment. And then he talks about how you can change the present by basically making people into cyborgs. He just he keeps bringing up cyborgs as the natural endpoint of liberalism. Yeah, this seems to be like a uh, another problem that seems to come up in other. I think we I touched on it uh, with bi-Leninism, but I think it also I think Terence McKenna definitely did it. This kind of assumption that other people other than the author themselves are just like automatons or easily programmable. Um, and it's almost like a, you know how like uh, uh, people having like uh, certain types of like um, so psychotic episodes or whatever can have like depersonalization, that sort of thing. It's almost like depersonalization, but towards others. I think that's called a lack of empathy. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> yeah, which when you're talking about such abstract things as like, well, McKenna was talking about what like dominated societies and uh, whatever, forage, no, not foragers, but like um, mother societies or whatever they were. Um, <laughs> and Dugan's talking about like Western versus non-Western. He's talking about such abstract um, groupings nebulous griefings that um it it would seem to be easy to fall into that sort of lack of lack of empathy yeah yeah when you are describing things and being so removed from everyday experience of other human beings it's like the west is acting or russia is acting but not like specific people in america are doing certain things it's this homogenous entity that is acting and therefore we can say that like automatons yeah and when he brings up specific americans he'll call them cyborgs or something like that like literally saying francis fukuyama might be a cyborg so is is this the rantings of a madman or is this somebody who isn't crazy but then just spent such a long time thinking through these these uh strange ideas that it, like uh he's he's ended up in a part in a sort of weird ideological space where he sounds at least somebody like me fucking crazy <laughs> but i don't think he's crazy <laughs> i think seems I think to be a functional person option is probably what's going on where he's he's just spent so much time reading a heidegger that it's broken his brain and he he's using this as a way to try to explain why he doesn't like the West maybe overextending itself in terms of interfering with the cultures of other countries. And you can you can oppose that without maybe... basing it in this strange phenomenological system. 
Maybe, maybe it's um like almost like an intellectual sunk cost bias. Like if you spent 10 years studying Hegel and Heidegger and whoever else and getting really into their stuff, like can you really just let that go as a way of analyzing the world and just be like, all right, well, <laughs> that's not working out <laughs> for me. I'm going to move on to – I was listening to this interview with uh, Peter Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens' brother extant brother <laughs> um, talking about how he used to be a Marxist and he was just like yeah and then I realized like you know it it's not true or whatever <laughs> or it's not it's not working and it's not going to work and it's not true whatever his reasons were for like not be not being a Marxist anymore when he was younger um, and I was like how many people do that um, I suppose it depends how deep you go but if you've only spent like a couple of years at uni, it's probably pretty easy to, find to just really be like, all right, well, that phase is over. <laughs> but yeah, if you spend like your whole too, life doing it. <laughs> deprogrammed Marxists tend to gravitate towards other quite hard-headed political ideologies. So a lot of the American neoconservatives actually were former Trotskyists, which I find, and you, and you can see the DNA of it yeah, in neoconservatism. Right. <laughs> oh, it yeah, depends which really wave of neoconservatism you're talking about. But... Uh, you know the 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 crystal liberal mugged by reality form of neoconservatism maybe less so, but in the George W. Bush form of neoconservatism, you can definitely see the Trotskyite fourth international global revolution DNA quite clearly in that desire to enter other countries whose knowledge of the historical process is wrong, that they don't celebrate freedom in the the North American sense and Im trying to impose upon them this correct view of thinking. I think that you can definitely see Trotskyism in those sort of people. Other people too, like, say, James Burnham, former, former Trotskyite who became a, an, mm. a conservative in America during the Cold War, especially in certain writings of his, like the managerial, managerial revolution, you can really see the Trotskyism. Even with his later books, when he left behind... For example, the historical determinism, as described in Marx, even then you can really hear the echoes of a Trotskyist past. So this is not, not really on topic, but I find it interesting that even when someone leaves a faith like Marxism, you can definitely see the influence on that person's mind. Or maybe the, the sort of person who's attracted to as totalizing and rigid a structure as Marxism in the first place will even upon leaving such a system just seek another system with a similar level of rigidity. Perhaps it depends on the process by which they are deprogrammed. Was it like, I don't know, a, uh, like was it methodical and thought through or was it an emotional reaction or, you know, See, like, Peter Hitchens seemed to be fairly well... I mean, I don't know fuck all about Peter Hitchens, so it was just a random thing. Um, he might be really crazy, for all I know. Mm. But uh, he seemed to be fairly considered in this particular interview, and he didn't seem to... But then other people, yeah, like, <clears throat> it, it permeates their, their thinking, like, quite severely. Mm. I don't think it's... It's not a craziness. It's a... At least with Marxists, so this is a specific case, but I find there's a real rigidity... They tend to be very, very inflexible thinkers. Yeah, yeah sorry. Not necessarily wrong. Right. So, for example, I brought up James Burnham. His book, The Machiavellians, I really enjoyed. But there is, it's, it, it, there is a rigidity. It's, to be excellent. it's not it. craziness, but 
and they're not willing, they're not really that flexible. Anyway, Dugan definitely has that as well, but he's he's doubled down on it. He's tripled down on it. He just he just keeps going all in on the <laughs> the Heideggerian explanations as to why Russia should invade Ukraine. Yeah, he's pretty committed. <laughs> should we move on to um another topic? What's an interesting one? Yeah, the next few chapters actually. How about how about we get the cra- all the craziness out of the way, and then we can deal with his concrete topics? Because he's got a few chapters here where he starts discussing geopolitics in more temperate terms. But then later on, he's got a chapter on post-political anthropology, which is more wackiness. How about we just get all the wackiness out of the way, all of the theory, and then we can discuss his geopolitics, which are actually fairly straightforward. Sure. Where do you want to start? He's got this chapter called The New Political Anthropology, The Political Man and His Mutations, where he talks about political anthropology. He doesn't really define it, but I think I've worked out a definition. And then he talks about post-political anthropology, which is where we are headed. So he, re- he regards the West in the 21st century as a transitional state between modernity and true post-modernity. So we're not quite post, completely post-modernist yet, but getting there. And political anthropology exists for modernity. Post-political anthropology will exist for post-modernity. And we are, we're shifting between the two at the moment. So political anthropology is basically an examination of how politics makes a human being. So he says that everything that a person is comes not from their individual self but from the politics within which they exist and he defines politics basically as the 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 relation of power between individuals this network of power as exerted by individuals over other individuals he he says this i've got a quote here so what man is is derived not from him but from politics it is politics being the dispositive of violence and legitimate power that defines the man It is the political system that gives us our shape. Moreover, the political system has an intellectual, conceptual, power and shape-shifting potential that can turn us into everything. The answer to the anthropological question rests on the configuration of power in the society. The power itself consists of two elements. It is the power to shape the paradigm, integrated in the society through state institutions, and the dispositive of violence, which serves as a means to integrate the very paradigm into the society in every concrete case. Consequently, the one, controlling power and its structure, controls our concept of the man. The sphere of political anthropology merges here, the sphere of the political view on the man. But there is also the concept of the political man. The difference between these two categories is that the political concept of the man is the concept of the man as such, which is installed in us by the state or the political system. While the political man is particular, a proposed way to correlate with this very state At first the state or the political system installs us, and then it grants or takes away our rights. So a few things here. Apart from what I described earlier, I think he's also making this distinction between the sense of self or our senses of ourselves as beings is predicated upon the political system we exist within or the the structure of power relationships around us. And then you have this idea of your 
individual rights or what you can or can't do in this particular society, which is given to you or imposed upon you after you have already been shaped ontologically by the power structure you exist within. And this is political anthropology. And he says that this is this has existed in humanity, but will cease to exist in post-modernity, because post-modernity entails a complete destruction of vertical authority. You, you have a purely rhizomal structure of society, I guess. It's kind of murky what he's what he's getting at here, what the difference between political anthropology and post-anthropology truly is. Because in the post-modernity he's describing, there still exist power relationships. They might be more diffuse than he's, he's happy with, despite being an avowed cultural relativist, but there still are power relationships, and I'm not sure how it's fundamentally different to the state in which he says you have political anthropology. I thought this distinction was pretty arbitrary and fuzzy pretty unsatisfying perhaps he could get out of that by saying well we're in a transition state so this is less vertically integrated and more rhizomal than it was say pre-world war ii or whatever pre-soviet union maybe or even like maybe even go further back Mm, mm. to like traditionalist quote-unquote societies um and then it could take however many decades or hundreds of years through this post modern transition um over that time will become increasingly increasingly rhizomal to the point where it fuzzes out into just a big old yeah, mycelium. I, I agree. That, so the, the transitional <laughs> uh, state... Mycelium of human minds yeah, and bodies. But the, tra- the transitional up, state at the moment future. makes sense. But he does describe the, the post-modernity that will come after this transitional state. But even within that, there are power relationships. Maybe there, maybe there won't be a single figure oriented vertically yeah. above everyone else. But there'll still be power relationships. There'll still be a politics, at least according to his definition. It's just going to be a differently shaped network to what he seems to want. And I still think the distinction he's drawing between political anthropology and political or post-political anthropology is just really arbitrary. I don't see how his definition of post-political anthropology doesn't just fall within political anthropology as a subset, just as a different orientation or arrangement of power relationships. Yeah, I'm not sure. Can't, I think can't he, I think he might have just been talking shit. It might just be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's... Um, do you think it's... Like, what is the role of these ideas of, like... Um, separating history into sort of stages like modern postmodern or even the information age or the industrial age or i always just thought of them as like convenient ways of talking about parts of history that are um like for the sake of communicating 
and organizing one's thoughts, but strictly speaking, they're not like an ontological feature. Yeah, it's of like people who get of like the world. Like when when did like where is the information start the information age starting? Like, are we in the information age? Are we in a transition to the information age? Like, what? <laughs> like it's just yeah. I, re- I see them more yeah. as convenient organizational tools. It's like people who get really wound up about about correctly classifying different bands according to the micro subgenres of metal the people who get tied yeah. up in knots as always oh, arts by a technical brutal <laughs> death metal or brutal technical death metal with with blackened elements and a bit of core in there it's ultimately look the band sounds as the band sounds independently of the genre label attached to it but the genre label can be convenient if you're trying to compare bands similarly with history the the label of a historical epoch can be useful in terms of comparison but it needs to be borne in mind that you classifying a certain time as a belonging to a certain historical period doesn't entail an ontological change of what happened then it's a it's a a convenient label yeah i think i think dugan would disagree with us I, th- I think he's saying that there is some ontological foundation to these different aspects. Yeah, whereas I think there are definitely... Like there are different times certainly have different characters because different things are happening in those times. There are different... Yeah, different ideas are dominant. There's different ideas, different people. Yeah. <laughs> and different circumstances. Within a certain stretch of time, there probably are times that are sufficiently similar to warrant being grouped together according to some particular descriptive model and saying, okay, well, these, all of these events bear some resemblance to each other or seem to have some cause in common. And so it makes sense to group them. But ultimately, they, these are all just different descriptive features or different descriptive systems, more for convenience and trying to work out what happened and maybe be able to predict future events. Describing something differently ultimately doesn't change it. Yeah, I'm inclined to to agree. I wonder, but uh, they must. Oh well, somebody like Dugan must be out. Must try to link it up. Hmm. I, I suppose that's part of the function of things like the Dasein. Like by positing that entity, you actually give some sort of mechanism of action for saying that there's like different, distinctly ontologically different parts of history. Yeah, I don't know. Potentially, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, what uh, next? Oh, I've, uh, got, I've got a next really funny good idea. <laughs> where Alexander Dugan just starts sounding like Evola. He sounds a lot like Evola in a lot of this, but he sounds like Evola at Evola's best uh-huh. in this quote. I quote: "Today, the man is not regarded as a whole. His parts are considered to be independent." It is his desires, emotions, moods and inclinations that matter. At the same time, on the one hand, the attention is transferred from the individual to the sub-individual level, and on the other hand, the sub-individual level merges with other sub-individualities. That is, it enters the domain of the trans-individual. A contemporary discotheque, chaos, can be regarded as a metaphor for this trans-individuality. It is possible to distinguish between pairs, figures, passes, expressions, sexes during quadrille or even rock and roll dance, which is late modernity. But as for discotheque, there are creatures of uncertain sex, undefined appearance and vague identity, slowly and regularly shaking to the tact of music. 
Moreover, the shaking has an over-individual nature. The people aren't shaking, they are being shaken. What shakes each concrete discotheque visitor shakes the others. In this case, are all they shaking together? No, their parts are shaking simultaneously, given in to a common resonator. Something like this is happening in politics, the de-individualisation of the individual and the sub- and trans-individualisation of political institutions and structures. And I like this quote because at the same time as he's disapprovingly talking about people dancing in a club, he is... He is elucidating his view of the world in a way that I think is revealing and quite interesting. So he's saying that a feature of our transitional period is that the the drives within an individual are afforded more and more and more reality in terms of defining our political systems and our social structure than they were previously. And he seems to be saying that this is happening in a a decentralised manner, but in such a way that sinks up a large number of people. So his metaphor of people not shaking, but being shaken by a common resonator. So there's this music playing that each individual responds to themselves, not in conference with everyone around them, that makes them dance, or in, in his words, shake. And similarly... During this transitional period, we are all degenerating from individuals, as, as dictated by liberalism, into post-liberal, he calls them dividuals, divided individuals, these collections of desires, tastes, wants and needs, which all seem to express themselves independently of each other, being shaken by some external resonator, whatever zeitgeist it is of post-modernity that compels our divided selves to act. So I enjoyed this quote because I thought it was somewhat revealing. I think it's a pretty cool idea, personally. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a good yeah. premise for like a, for a sci-fi novel or something. Yeah, it's kind of, it's this weird kind of, um, yeah, imagine writing a sci-fi where it's, it's almost like it's dystopian totalitarianism, but the, the totalitarian aspect is actually just an amorphous um, <clears throat> kind of, I don't know, mm, self-conscious mm. memeplex that um, commands the bodies of the humans that are kind of, you know, like it almost like a, when you hear music and it makes say like the, the hairs yeah, on the yeah. back of your neck stand up when for you're whatever reason. And ball um, is it like the fact that an external, that like some abstract information can propagate across physical substrates and, you know, like air, tympanic membrane, electrical cracklings in your brain, and then that translates into some like sound qualia can then make the hairs on the back of your neck physically stand up shows that there's some component of these things that can have physical aspect, like physical causal impacts on us. So that taken to its logical extreme, could there be like a memeplex that actually like <coughs> makes people do the twist, <laughs> even if they really don't feel like dancing? Yeah, it's sort of like infinite jest where there's the videotape where if you watch it, you start laughing until you die. <laughs> or the, uh, there was that, what was that, did you ever watch Bird Box? No. 
Uh, that was a pretty. <laughs> Would you like it? Do you like horror films or do you like sort of sci fi horror films? I find horror films really boring most of the time. They're just a quite hollow. This was a really interesting one. You might like this one. I'll give you the premise, but not, okay. not like ruin it. Basically, the world's been invaded by like some alien species, apparently. And when people just look at whatever this entity is, they go insane and start killing the people around them or they'll kill themselves. And so the goal is to try to navigate through the world of the main characters, is to navigate through the world to like some safe haven where with, without laying eyes on the thing. And so if there's any signs that the thing is near, they need to close their eyes and shit. <laughs> Man, those people born, people who are congenitally blind who can navigate by echolocation would just be... Absolutely, yeah. That's the, that so that's, that's so the premise. Okay. They're trying to, they're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're trying to navigate to a school for the blind. <laughs> that's that's their target destination. That's a <laughs> pretty cool they, idea. They yeah, I, I hope yeah. I hope someone has performed a themes analysis of that film on the basis of Alexander Dugan's ideas. Maybe Zizek should do that. Man, fuck Slavoj Zizek. I wish he just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in this um, boogie, shaky, post-liberal future, he'll just um, be vaporized and his ideas will just enter into sort of like ubiquitous thoughtscape of all humans. We will all <laughs> suddenly start overnight wearing food-stained T-shirts with holes in them and a picture of <laughs> Lennon's face on the front. Start slobbering it out the Bank of America. What a fucking slob. It's <laughs> on stage in front of thousands of people, can't even put on a clean fucking shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about him when he's interviewed. I get it that he's he's obviously got a bunch of facial tics and things like that that he can't help. But yeah, that's, so it's like, that's not his fault. Don't sharpen your fucking pyjamas, mate. That That yeah. is under his control. <laughs> it's almost contemptuous, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> Maybe that's the point. Uh, he he seems mostly to be style over substance, so that could be actually the most, <laughs> the most substantive thing he's said, showing up to an interview dressed as a fucking slob. Who anyway, would be... as people can probably tell, I'm not a great fan of Slavoj Žižek. Who, who uh, if I could sit you down at a table, you know, like the, the table, the most interesting dinner table conversation, like who would you invite? Like three people. Mm. Let's do that except like the opposite. <laughs> who would be the three people you'd hate most if I can sit down at a table with? <laughs> I would put, uh, I, <laughs> I would, I would put Elliot Roger, maybe Terrence McKenna. <laughs> I reckon Oscar Kissmeyer, the guy who wrote The Beginning annoying. Was The End. <laughs> he sounded like an absolute cunt. I think Evla would be pretty annoying. He seemed, I watched videos with him and he seemed pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And all the comments of the videos were like, I can see the wisdom in his eyes. Oh, he yeah, was truly sure. an ascended man. <laughs> sure he was. <laughs> uh, Dugan would be able I don't know, but, but I think Zizek would be pretty bad. Zizek would, Zizek would probably be on there. Apart from anything else, he'd spray the walls with food as he's trying to eat. 
or his feces. <laughs> what was that? Um, <laughs> that guy, uh, that uh, philosopher, um, that ancient Greek philosopher who was just like, I don't give a fuck, and just like would walk around like in dirty clothes and sleep in oh, barrels and shit. Yeah, Diogenes. He didn't give a who, shit. Who yeah, consciously <laughs> models his behavior on that of a dog. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he apparently uh, would wander around. I think it was Athens with a with a lantern. And when people were asking uh, Diogenes, mate, what are you doing, wandering around, he would say, "I am looking for a good man." I think, fuck off, piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, the there's face. a video on YouTube saying, like, saying Zizek, the modern Diogenes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not a compliment. <laughs> so anyway, I, I'm being next, unfair. Next I, I don't know much Dugan. about Diogenes Dugan. beyond his strange behaviour. I do, however, feel He's very strange. confident in making fun of Slavoj Žižek. I'm not apologising for that. Before before we started recording, Jack and I were saying like how hellish it would be to actually read Heidegger or Hegel or Žižek. And whether or not we do is actually like in strong contention because I've backed down on my like saying, hey, we should read Hegel or whatever. I've backed the fuck down after reading Dugan. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to read it. <laughs> I've, I've been fairly firm in saying I'm not going to read Heidegger or Hegel. I underestimated just how bad things could get until reading Dugan. Because I think Being in Time is 600 pages or so of much more turgid prose than anything Dugan's ever written. No fucking thank you. We would have to be getting paid so much fucking money. Phenomenology of spirit <laughs> by Hegel is, is similarly bad, I think. I've got a copy of Being in Time, which I think I got it ages ago. And I think I got five pages in before thinking, fuck this. this. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was feeling ambitious when I, when I got that book. I <laughs> not got any further in. I should always download the PDF first, just to double check before you get the paperback. <laughs> oh, this this was this was pre. I think this was when I was in high school. That, I mean, yeah, of course you could download oh, yeah, PDFs. Yeah, yeah. I just I just wasn't doing that nearly as much as I was now. I check I check books beforehand. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the naive Jack just pulled up being in time. <laughs> it's like, this would be a nice weekend. I, I learned my lesson. <laughs> developed a lifelong aversion to heidegger okay so we've we've described political anthropology political post-anthropology is this state of the human in in the discotheque dancing to rock and roll music it's it's this disaggregation of all of their their desires their animal needs which then sync up and seem to form clusters not of individuals, so not an individual person, which is a delineated collection of these wants and needs, these desires, but instead form trans individuals. So you've got these almost subroutines of different people which start to have more in common with similar subroutines of other people than with the other subroutines of the individual. I'm trying to think of how to how to put this. So say someone's... Yeah, someone's desire for sweet food, instead of that being a component of the individual, the desires for sweet food across individuals start to clump together and act, act almost as individuals, trans individuals, as, as Dugan puts it, 
in the state of post-modernity. And those come to be, instead of individuals, the actors in post-modernity, these trans individuals linking up across people and these individual person or people, so the, the physical beings walking around, are no longer individuals but individuals because they're basically just a bag of different wants and needs. All they are is the physical locus of these wants and needs which then link between nodes, these, these human nodes, to form the trans individuals. I, I think that I is the basis of post-political that. anthropology. And as such, the multitude becomes a political unit. And when I say a multitude, it's not even a multitude of individuals, but it's a multitude of desires that coordinate between individuals, and those are political units in post-modernity. And I don't know how much I agree with it, but that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, so if you can have something like the design or class or whatever that can aggregate up <clears throat> kind of unified thing across many individual bodies, why couldn't you have the opposite direction? Kind of like a grassroots mini designs uniting across like fractions of individuals. <laughs> it's pretty weird to think about. <laughs> the thing is, I don't know if this is Dasein. I think Dasein is at this stage completely buried people have lost contact with this oh yeah this i know it's not that's not design i'm kind of making like a uh like we have these non-human things these entities some of which are like class which sort of like unified across the aggregate but then could you have like a disunified sort of emergent like aggregates in in the rhizome of these like uh non-physical entities yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Like and it. also That's a wacky idea. Yeah. In this state the the future is destroyed because he's got this thing about political teleology. He says that all political ideologies have within them political theologies. And a political theology is as far as I can tell you have a political telos, so some sort of endpoint that this this political theology is grasping for. So, a religious analogy would be in Christianity. There is a Christian telos oriented towards the last judgment, the end of days, and where the kingdom of God will be on the earth. It's oriented to that, and similarly, political theologies will have some sort of orientation a future world where that, that political ideology is dominant. And these can be human-made. So he talks about Hobbes's Leviathan, so this state in which you have a, a state led by a, a dictator. I've, I'm trying to remember if, he, if Hobbes had a non-authority or if he, if he prescribed that it had to be authoritarian or not. I read Leviathan a while ago. But anyway, it's you know, this, this totalizing state. So it can be man-made or it can be non-human, so a Catholic imperium. This idea of empire as something under God is the telos reached for by a particular political theology, which is animating a political ideology. What about space marines? Space marines, yeah. Well, that, that's the, 
that's the only true political theology. Space Marines. Does liberalism turn us all into space marines? If so, I'm doubling down on liberalism. Once the once the glorious emperor appears, is when I'm I'm going to be, I'm going to be all for whichever political ideology and theology orients towards. Who the Who do you reckon is most likely to become the emperor of mankind? Mm, I'd say Papa Jeff. Oh, Jeff! Papa yeah, Jeff pretty, of Amazon. He's got a good fame. emperor emperor vibe, doesn't he? Daddy Jeff. Daddy Papa Jeff. Yeah, I reckon he'd be the emperor of good mankind. One. Yeah, that's a good one. I can't I can't think of a better alternative uh um coming up, you know. Contender. Elon Musk doesn't have the, the gravitas required to be the Emperor of Mankind, I think. No, he doesn't. He's I'm also he's sure the jocular, isn't he? Yeah. The he listeners doesn't, who he don't also know doesn't have that about thought. Warhammer forty K, I'm sure are really enjoying this segment. He also doesn't have like a kind of, um, what would you say, like a chip on his shoulder in the same way that like I think Bezos does, <laughs> it seems. Mm, mm. Um, whereas, you know, like Bezos is like kind of bold and funny looking, right? Like surely that guy's got like a lot of pent up anger. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <the world. laughs> a huge amount of pent up rage. Just look at his eyes. <laughs> Those like, like the sort of eyes you. that you turn your back on. <laughs> Those, you turn your back on him and all of a sudden he's like gouging every every bit of margin in your business it's like i didn't even didn't even you know turn around and all the furniture has suddenly disappeared from your room <laughs> it's been sold you notice that your left arm is missing and he's chewing on it <laughs> yeah i i reckon he yeah, no, emperor emperor of jeff. he's a, he's a good emperor candidate jeff. for the emperor of mankind You'd have some dark horse candidates. Kim Jong-un. My, he's a bit of a child, hey? He's a little bit of a... Yeah, I know. It'd be a pretty, bit, it'd be a pretty wild bit. imperium, though, if Kim Jong-un... Yeah, a little bit. I reckon um, the emperor of a really good alternative actually would be, um, would be uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's got a real emperor. So oh, yeah. He could definitely be the emperor of mankind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bibi. Yeah, Bibi could go totally. And he can Jeff. fight. He was a commander. Yeah, he, he, he yeah, he's pretty scary. <laughs> oh man, he might be better than Papa Jeff. I think he's a yeah, he'd be a better Emperor of Mankind than he's Papa Jeff. You're right. He's definitely, he's got, definitely the got the vibe. He's got the background. Netanyahu's probably the front runner for being Emperor of Mankind. <laughs> the Imperium of Man. And spreading his voice the to the Imperium stars. of Man. <laughs> what about some kind of weird gargoyle fusion of Papa Jeff and Bibi? <laughs> you can make a style you can link their brains. Fuse, fuse the most aggressive empire building parts of their personalities and bodies. I do not think that we would want to monster. see a fusion of, <laughs> of, of Bibi and Bezos. Bezos <laughs> Bibi Bezos. And all hail Emperor Bibi Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> Papa Bebenyahu. Bebenyahu. <laughs> Bebenyahu or Netanyahu's. Either one. Netanyahu's. <laughs> That's Netanyahu's. A good one. Emperor Netanyahu's. He will, uh, he'll crush you if you don't obey him, but he'll get you all your shit to you. Same day he'll delivery. Crush the Xenos. 
No one will be able to handle interplanetary, galactic-wide delivery and and infrastructure. Same day, same day, same day. No matter where in the Milky Way you from your, are, from your, uh, no matter which side the, of the, the Eye of Terra you're on, center, you will get your delivery. Your <laughs> Speed of light, fuck that. <laughs> Just post straight the through the walls. He does not give a shit. With you know stars rearranged into like smiley faces for Amazon to indicate like different parts of the, the galaxy. This is another super center <laughs> depot, Amazon Depot. So the entire galaxy turns into just one. Can giant you imagine planet sized Amazon, Amazon fulfillment centers? That'd be just that happy future we could look horrifying. forward to if they transformed yeah. whole planets. To, to fulfillment set fulfillment and everybody everybody, everybody has like an alexa 10,000 where it's not even listening to your voice it's just implanted straight into your brain and it's just constantly listening to your every thought and as soon as like any any sort of uh bodily desire for anything arises it instantly co- like does the machine learning correlates to it to like uh like the optimal product to satisfy that desire and that immediately makes it materialize in your hand. Oh, that'd be so good. And just imagine the workers in those places too. Like as soon as they have bodily desires, like needing to go to the bathroom, for example, just sh- it just, it just overrides that and they'll just shit themselves <laughs> or piss themselves as they're running around the warehouse <laughs> fulfilling orders. They just, they won't even be aware of the stench of their own feces as they're, they're blissfully <laughs> performing their duties the to the, to the emperor. It Bebe makes Yahoo. them happy as well. Bebe yeah, Yahoo, it makes Emperor them happy. They're ecstatic. <laughs> it makes them happy. They're, they're the when they hit themselves, they start, they start giggling with joy. <laughs> like, oh, yes, I can fulfill my duty. I can de- I can indicate my, uh, demonstrate my dedication to my job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's Their need for sleep is overridden and eventually they just collapse and die from exhaustion. But there's just this rictus grin smeared across their faces of pure hallucinations as they do it. As they work themselves, like their feet down to bloody stumps. (laughs) Anyway, we're we're discussing the the inevitable future of liberalism. Post-liberalism in just the the interplanetary galactic rhizome made out of Stellar <laughs> Amazon fulfillment depots run by under Emperor the benevolent ben- gaze of the cyborg fusion of Benjamin Netanyahu and Papa Jeff. I like this. This is, this is much is better good. than Dugan. <laughs> Thanks, Dugan. Thanks for giving us the jumping off point to talk about a much brighter, hope, more hopeful future. The Amazonization <laughs> of the Milky Way. All right, let's let's crack on. Let's get let's. Uh, do you want to talk about gender or something or? Oh yeah, let's go. Let's let's talk about gender. And uh let's uh let's keep on moving. Keep it going. Keep on going. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see yeah, here. Yeah, so basically gender and every, fourth every oh, ideology has a concept <laughs> of gender and fourth political theory will be no different. But it needs to have a different gender to liberalism because he doesn't like liberalism. Or to modernity. So he says the underlying understanding of gender, of modernity, of the three modern political theories is that of patriarchy. So, for example, within liberalism, the political gender, which he, he defines political gender as really a social norm, the basis of political power, 
and well, the only the only acceptable or normative base of political power is the the political gender. The political gender within liberalism is a white adult rational man of of the bourgeoisie. And it's this is quite interesting. So when he talks about he says liberalism claims to be extending uh, the the moral sphere to encompass more and more groups within society. But he disagrees. He says this is a sham. Actually, what it's doing is it's just converting non-liberal men into liberal men. So in extending the political franchise to women, he says actually what happened is women were just converted into bourgeois men rather than the franchise being extended to women. So he then... Like, it, it gets more and more hazy as he tries to stretch this to fit with communism and fascism. He says that communism, too, is patriarchal. So the the unit of, or the, the political gender, is still this rational adult European man. But he's, instead of being bourgeois, he's a worker. He then flips it and says, oh, but because in communism everyone is working to a post-bourgeois future where everyone will exist as workers, they're actually working towards a state when gender in the bourgeois sense won't exist. There'll be perfect uh, perfect equality of, of the genders as we currently conceive of them because those genders will not exist. They'll all be equal. In saying that, he's kind of already undermined his contention that the classical political theories all understand gender in a patriarchal sense. When he talks about fascism, it makes a bit more sense because he says basically the fascist political gender is the same as the liberal political gender, just more extreme. It's a heroic, aggressive masculinity. He, he then goes on to say, okay, what's political gender going to look like in the fourth political theory? And he goes into Dasein again. He says that this idea of division of men and women really comes after Dasein. So Dasein is this understanding of a being of itself anteriorly to any sort of division of experience, of schematizing the world into male and female, for example. Therefore, he says the gender of a political theory, which takes Dasein to be its, its historical subject, is going to be the radical individual, or the the radical subjectivity. I think he calls it, or the radical, yeah, the radical subject. That's it. Yeah, the radical subject, and basically, the radical subject is a basically a pre-gendered subjectivity. And he says, "Yep, this is going to be the gender of the fourth political theory." He says specifically that the subject of the fourth political theory is a non-adult male. Yeah, because it's it's anterior to all of that. It's uh, it's Dasein. Dasein exists before things have been um, differentiated in that way, because he lists the things that the liberal political gender entails, and then says, "Well, we don't want any of these because I don't like liberalism." But then sums everything up by effectively saying, "Well, because Dasein is the historical subject, therefore, all of these aspects of gender will exist in a pre." differentiated state as the radical subject. I'm not sure what that looks like, but he brings it up 
a few times, and I hope he has an idea of what it looks like. No. <laughs> <laughs> this particular chapter on Jeddah was just, for me, it was just completely cooked. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just complete nonsense. No, there were actually a lot of chapters like this. For, <laughs> I was just like, I read it and I was like, I don't know what to take away from this. <laughs> it's a it's pansexual cyborg. <laughs> yeah, basically. I still there are a lot more links between Alexander Dugan and and the the wackiest of woke cod philosophers that than than either would be willing to admit. I think <laughs> he's got this idea of political angelology, which he says is a natural continuation of uh, of of the rhizomization of politics. I'll read a quote where he describes political angelology and give what I think he's saying, but I'm not entirely clear what he means by political angelology. So he says, there really is a command centre in post-politics. There are actors, there are decisions, but they are totally dehumanised in post-modernity. They are beyond the frames of anthropology. We can find a certain proof of this hypothesis in traditional teachings, in traditional eschatologies, which state that the end times won't be triggered by the human hand, that it will st stand still prior to the final hour. The rest will not depend on the man. That will be a war of angels, a war of gods, a confrontation of entities not tied by historical or economic laws and patterns, which don't identify themselves with religions or certain political elites. And this angelic war can be thought over politically. This is Angelopolis, or Politeides says it in German, I don't know how to pronounce it, which I bring forward as a concept, devoid of mysticism and esotericism, which has the same sense and nature as Schmidt's metaphor of political theology. Political angelology must be thought over as a metaphor, which is both scientific and rational. Angelopolis is a method to understand, to interpret, and to make hermeneutical deciphering of the contemporary processes which surround us and are regarded as being alienated from the political anthropology, from human as a species, a politically institutionalised and constituted notion. I think political angelopolis is this state that we were describing earlier where individuals dissolve into this cross-individual network of wants and desires which have more in common with other similar wants and desires than they do with the particular physical human feeling these wants and desires. And he seems to be saying that this is some sort of eschatology. So eschatology is the study of the end of the world or of the end times. And he's saying, I think that under a in a political angelopolis, there will be conflict, but this conflict won't be between humans, but it'll be between angels. It'll be between these trans-individual desires, which will be resisting each other. If that's what he's saying, that's that again, it's a cool idea, but I'm not actually sure that's what he's saying. That's this is me grasping at straws a bit. What do you think? I think that seems like a reasonable mapping. I was thinking, uh, like, wouldn't... <laughs> would, wouldn't <laughs> or at least a, a reasonable attempt at a mapping. 
but uh, I was wondering, like, what? How do I put this? Like, when you meet someone, or like talk, you're talking to someone, and you can tell that they're present and it's nice and it's lovely, and sometimes you can tell that like somebody's off with their thoughts or whatever, or there's something else going on. They're like, what are they thinking about? Um, I feel like Dugan must give off this like sense of like whenever you people are interacting with him that he's just like thinking like what like the angels of this person's like ribosomal fluctuations in correspondence with like the rest of <laughs> like the spirit <laughs> animating this culture like just can't even see people for people in front of him they're just like these aspects of these strange ideas the guy has <laughs> it might, it'd be, i have a feeling it'd be really like it potentially like hard to hold down like a conversation with this guy <laughs> <laughs> he'd have a strange affect <laughs> you just yeah sense yeah something's off like, about him. sense that like is this guy about like does he even see me as a person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends whether you're you're part of the degenerate West or if you're a good Russian. Are we are we just automatons? Like I'm just like he just regards me as an automaton. Are. Yeah, definitely have the uh, vocal cadence to be an automaton. <laughs> <laughs> speak more, speak more box like a box. Vocal cadence. According to someone on the Discord, I sound like Chef. Oh, some chef, some American chef, uh, Chef Jim or something like that. I had to look it up. That was uh, that was news <laughs> to me. <laughs> got a very you've got a great radio voice, Jack. Thank you. A great voice for discussing <laughs> discussing for the for Dugan's the political angelopolis ribosome under the emperor of humanity. Um, next idea, next idea. What's it? What's another good one? Oh, he starts talking about spy kids too. <laughs> I quote from the chapter Conservatism and Postmodernity. People have become the contemplators of television. They have learned how to switch channels better and faster. Many of them don't stop at all. They click the remote control and it's already not important what is on TV. It is actors or news. The spectators of postmodernity don't understand anything at all in principle of what is going on. It's just a stream of impressive pictures the spectator gets used to microprocessors. He becomes a subspectator that watches not the channels or programs, but separate segments, the sequences of programs. In this case, the ideal movie is Spy Kids 2 by Rodriguez. It is made up like there is no any sense, but it is possible to be distracted from this fact because as soon as our consciousness is bothered with it, at the same instant appears a flying pig and we are bounded to watch where it is flying. And likewise, when the flying pig bothers us the next moment, a little dragon comes out from a pocket of the main character. This work of Rodriguez is perfect. Roughly the same effect reaches a person that tirelessly clicks a remote control all the time. The only channel that still works in the other rhythm is the culture, Russian channel, because there are still some unhurried stories about composers, art, workers, students, theatres, the remains of modernity. If you take it from the list, you can go on calmly switching the channels and not expecting to meet something that is shown not in the rhythm that is necessary to live in. He wrote this before TikTok. I wonder what he makes of the TikTokization yeah, he of entertainment media because he, he predicted it here. That's he predicted crazy. it right here. I, weirdly enough, on some level kind of agree with him or, you know, if I really I, I agree with a lot of this my section. view of the world, like, 
have you i don't know what your experience has been like but being to a home where like the people watch too much tv but not not like i mean you could say that oh okay you watch an hour of tv after dinner it's quite a lot you add that up over the year that that adds up quite a bit but which you know whatever but uh, but then there's people's houses that I've been in where it's like the TV's like always on, and they'll be watching TV for like four or five hours a night. And if it's Foxtel or like some cable TV, it's like you just switch forever and just like kind of people can be. I've seen people in kind of almost like drone-like states. It's really weird. Yeah, and I think the same can be said for YouTube. Just clicking through recommended videos, state, flicking through in front of you. TikTok, just anything with with a recommendation algorithm that can keep feeding you stuff is the next and step of that. Yeah, I do think like we we live in a society that is to a large extent characterized by distraction. That's I think one of the essential components of our society, and especially the these days. Like the algorithms that they have on these are that we're trying to take advantage of <laughs> to get our <laughs> ideas out there. Uh, <laughs> the like, is, uh, I don't is... know how compulsive listening us talking for hours about Alexander Dugan is. <laughs> There's this uh, funny saying on uh, who said it? I can't remember. Um, the point of so for some people, the point of doing a podcast or something similar is to become well known, and for others, it's be it's to become known well. <laughs> I feel like we fall in the second category at the moment. <laughs> Definitely don't have a broad yes, yes. reach, but we've got people like Names and Keon on the server that have listened to like ridiculous amounts of our voices and probably have some <laughs> sense of, like, hours of personality. <laughs> we probably the have almost 100 hours of our voice on the internet friendship <laughs> with these people. <laughs> no, it's some not strange. entirely unidirectional. <laughs> no, especially with the Discord, it's not unidirectional at all. Like in, in terms no, no, of no. volume, it's very one-sided, but it's very asymmetric. Yeah, but yeah, definitely, so, um, everyone should get on the Discord. I really like talking to people on there, and meet some uh, really interesting people. <laughs> shout out to everybody else. Shout out, shout out to fucking F Gardner. <laughs> yeah, F Gardner's on the the Discord, <laughs> and he and Names are having long discussions about, about the finer so points of good. Buddhism. That's just absolutely incredible that we happen to bring these two totally different and strange people. It's kind of like an internet wedding of weirdos, F. Gardner and names, fanboy of the I just love the, the, the duality <laughs> totally. of F. Gardner because when you read his books, they just feel like a descent into madness. And then yeah, yeah. when you interact with him, he's so mild-mannered. He seems really nice. <laughs> and, and nice and to his, talk his to. His YouTube channel, he seems like, on, on his YouTube channels, what is watching some of his videos, like, he seems like a really nice guy that just has some really yeah. strange ideas. <laughs> he seems like yeah. a lovely, lovely dude um, who would be very polite if you came to his house and stuff. <laughs> and then his books are just, <laughs> just pretty, pretty strange. Yeah, yeah. And then he's got all these really strange views, like the, this no-earther, no, the no-earther movement. It's like flat earth, but no-earth. Yeah, there, there are some very good people on, on the Discord. There's a Bar- Barapam. I think, that's his, I think that's his name. I can't remember. The Swe- Swedish guy who keeps recommending massively long books in Swedish. Uh, 
<laughs> I still don't speak Swedish. Would you learn Swedish? Learn Swedish to read one of Barapam's suggestions. <laughs> oh, he's got. He suggested some really good ones. He suggested one that was. It's some Swedish guy who was obsessed with Atlantis and eventually proposed that I think Uppsala was the old capital of Atlantis. That's really interesting. Can we get an English translation? Can Barapam, can There's, you translate one of these messages for us? If Barapam translates it, I'll read it. If not, yeah, I wonder we'll if we could solid. just Google Translate the entire book. I wonder how fucking shocking it would be. That would yeah, be annoying. no sense at all. It'd be pretty Swedish funny, and English though. are <laughs> linguistically pretty similar, so I imagine the translation would be pretty good, but it's also a question of can I be bothered. Anyway, this is... This is uh, Getting off topic, but shout out to everyone in Back the Discord. Back to Dr. Dugan. Yeah, shout out everyone. All listeners should join um, the Discord. It's, it's a lot of fun. Back to, back to Mr. Dugan. Discord. All listeners should also go onto Spotify and other podcasting platforms and rate us five stars. Because we are and at listen to our episodes on repeat 24 hours a day on multiple yeah, devices. Yeah, all those views. And then also... Because then we can get sponsors um, and, and I can hawk like keys. just anything to you guys. Anything. Yeah. In fact, I will, in, I will buy one of those anything. Bud Light fucking, but get one of those Bud Light experimental dream advertising fucking devices, and then s- just stream us constantly during your sleep. Blue chews, <laughs> blue chews. <Yeah. laughs> you special code uh, Jack and Levi at Hell fifteen for fifteen percent off. Ten percent off, fifteen percent off, and fifteen percent harder. On your next, uh, yep. Bluetooth. Your button. next order of boner pills from the internet. I want, I want a, I want a sponsorship from, um, not only Bluetooth, but also but from uh, Kim Jong Un. The North Korean, the North Korean commissar of of transportation and tourism is our latest sponsor, and he says, "Go to Pyongyang, beautiful place." Great food, great accommodation, low prices, only a 25% chance of being captured and tortured to death for some political infraction that you weren't even aware of. Great spot. <laughs> anyway, what were we saying about... about off your tree. Bad? That's it. Off your tree. Maybe I want to sponsor your tree. Your tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you go in there and say our names, you get a if free... you just want to buy your non-drug paraphernalia that... Why? Why is there a little Oil glass vial, vial? Why is there a little glass vial with a spoon attached to it? It's definitely not for putting things up your nose. Eating yogurt. <laughs> it's just. It's just next to like some, I don't know, fucking tie dye shirt. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. They're selling a lot of oil <laughs> lamps there that people can incidentally smoke weed out of. A lot of oil lamps. <laughs> That's what Oops. they call bongs. We what? What are we? We're just. Selling them. <laughs> we can't control what people do to them. <laughs> so can we move, move on to doing yeah, again? <laughs> do you want to talk about... He, he talks about the, the conservative and the left-wing um, alternatives to liberalism. And I thought this was sort of interesting. He talks about conservatism is a rejection of the logic of history in his mind a desire to stop historical processes or even to reverse them. And he lists out the opponents from conservatism 
of liberalism or of or of this transitional stage from liberalism to post-liberalism. And the first of these, he says, is traditionalism. And he quite likes traditionalism. He likes Evola and he likes René Guénon. Of these conservative op- opponents to post-modernity, traditionalism is the most logical and it opposes the very existence of the vector of progress over time. It denies the fact that there's this monotonicity to history. Dislikes everything modern that came about after the idea of linear time. However, it's politically disempowered and really has come to be ignored after the monarchies in Europe fell. And it, it was defended in the 20th century by Julius Eveler, René Guénon, and, and people like that. But it really does not have much political power behind it. He also says he draws the distinction between traditionalists and fascists, which I think is an important distinction to make and a distinction that some people fail to make. Interestingly, he says the best exemplars of traditionalism today are Islamists, the really hardcore Islamists. Uh, That's really interesting. Today's, today's traditionalists. He also says fundamentalist Protestants in the United States, the, 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 the really hardcore ones, are examples of traditionalists. He, uh, he then says another opposition is the conservative status quo, liberal conservatism. And these are people who like the main trend of modernity, but want the change to be slower. And he really does not have much time for this sort of person. He, sa- he says of them, liberal conservatism is, noted, is notable for the following qualitative structural characteristics a consent with the general trend of modernity, but a disagreement with its most vanguard manifestations that seem to be too dangerous and too harmful. For example, at first, an English philosopher, Edmund Burke, uh, as an aside, Edmund Burke was Irish, was in sympathy with the Enlightenment, but after the French Revolution, he rejected it and developed a liberal conservative theory with a frontal criticism of a revolution and the left's. Hence, it appears liberal conservative program defending liberties, rights, a human independence, progress, and equality with the help of other means. Evolution, but not revolution. This is not for letting out from some basement the dormant energies that have spilled over into the terror in the Jacobinism and then into anti-terror and so on. An interesting aspect of this quote is because I've... You know, I, I like reading Edmund Burke... And Dugan misrepresents him here, and that makes me question how accurately Dugan is representing the philosophies of other people he quotes, whom I know less about. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it it wasn't with... Burke didn't see the French Revolution and then suddenly go from being a leftist to a, a conservative. He remained a Whig. Like the, the point of his reflections on the revolution in France, written in, um, it was published in 1790, was that the, the French Revolution was overturning certain traditions and if they completely ripped away this total framework within which people could understand their place in the world, then likely violence will follow, huge dislocation will follow. This is a real simplification, but it wasn't that he saw the French Revolution and then suddenly became a liberal conservative. He was that 
all the time. And his problem with the French Revolution was that they were overturning what he regarded as a fundamental, a fundamentally important aspect of liberalism, which is that no, he didn't even think of it as liberalism. It was they were overturning tradition, which gave people a sense of meaning. Similarly, he supported the American Revolution or didn't even see it as a revolution. He just saw it as Englishmen demanding the rights that traditionally they were to be afforded as subjects of England. So his representation here of Burke is somewhat questionable. Right, so conservative revolution is another point of opposition or a locus of opposition to postmodernity from the right. Basically, these people just sound like accelerationists from, from a non-Marxist perspective, but from a conservative perspective. They're, these are people who want to ride out modernity until they appear on the opposite side of Dasein. And um, he says they want to turn the postmodernist game into non-game. I don't really know what that means, but he spends a few pages <laughs> basically describing people who just want modernity and postmodernity to get as ridiculous as possible so that they eventually collapse and um, maybe go back to a golden age of traditionalism. Finally, there's left conservatism, which is social conservatism. He cites as an example of this Georges Sorel, the people who have left-wing views but realise that leftists and rightists should fight together against the bourgeoisie. Whether this is really an opposition from the right, I'm not so sure, but like I mean that that's just kind of a categorical quibble. Yeah, it's one of the things where is it how useful are these these ideas? I don't know. Um have you read anybody like uh Sorel? I've the closest I've come to Sorel is Oh, actually, I brought him up earlier. James Burnham's The Machiavellians has a chapter on Sorel. Apart from that, I don't really know much about him. At least the good thing about somebody like Dugan is he he brings up, like, lots of uh, references to people which uh, are at least good to, to look into for either actual genuine, like, intellectual merit or for, like, just being, they might be crazy. <laughs> yeah, Sorrell's probably too normie for this. Or, oh, I mean, we could do him. <laughs> One person, actually, that, uh, that he brings up that I think would be good for this podcast is Guy Debord. Um, he was a French situationist. He wrote this book, The Society of the Spectacle, that I reckon would be really good for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a book that I want to read anyway as well, that, which helps. That was, uh, that was uh, like up, up, this, up this alley. Actually, he's got a uh, Eurasianism. Uh, so what else have we got? He's got <laughs> civilization. He defines civilization in a few different ways, which is kind of interesting. He has this chapter where he discusses yeah, different... I feel like this is another different one of definitions of it, basically. He would get along well with, um, like, camp, campus neo-Marxists on the civilization thing. Yeah. The, the thing with the civilization chapter is he, he examines different definitions of a civilization. For example, is it an ethnos? Is it a linguistic group? Is it a group which historically has been united under a single ruler? Uh, is it a geographic entity? In the end, he just uses it to start bashing 
American unipolarity. <laughs> it this is the common theme. When when he like. starts getting more concrete, I get more interested because it it tends to be less frivolous, but he tends to always have the same end point, which is America bad. And it's I think, yep, I get it. You don't you don't like that America is more powerful than your country. Which seems to be the central contention <laughs> of this book. The yeah. other the other thing I wanted to note about was it this chapter or was it one of the other chapters? I think it was well, it's kind of the whole book. Is uh and I was wondering if this is something that's common amongst uh these types of um intellectual traditions is you'd often just say like this person said this like freud said this or this philosopher said this and then just takes it as a given it's just like the fact that you can reference something that somebody said means that you can just use it as a as a working fact in what you're saying yeah Um, a lot yeah and it's almost like you build up this uh large like referential web of um or references obviously (laughs) and in so doing you're like saying you're like pulling ideas from other people but at no point like kind of substantiating what he's saying so you just have this like massive conglomeration of ideas and then if you actually want to like go and like understand them further you'd have to read like this enormous amount of like stuff <laughs> and so cherry picks it to like construct his case um yeah I've, I've never really read anything like that except in in books where well like this and Evler and stuff yeah yeah it's not it's not very satisfying i prefer he gave a brief summary of the ideas that he's taking from different authors that he's basing his argument on rather than just saying this person said this and then continuing yeah it's weird i found it found it really disorienting <laughs> another thing about his descriptions of civilizations is he gives a list of different civilization groups he gives a he gives examples of things that he considers civilizations according to his definition and he says that these are Western, Chinese, Japan, Islamic, Hindu, Slav Orthodox, Latin American, and African. Interestingly, he doesn't have the West there because he says that the West, that America and Europe are are too different and shouldn't be part of a civilization. In large part, that just strikes me as wishful thinking because it obviously really upsets him that there is a transatlantic alliance, which is stronger than Russia and stops Russia basically stomping all over all of the countries that it regards as the countries that it has to write a right to stomp all over, including where I live at the moment. And that, that does seem to upset him. Yeah. Interestingly, too, for all his talk about, about um, uniting historic, historically uh, linked civilizations, so he talks about Slav Orthodox, which includes Russia... The Russia, Turkey, the Caucasus, I wonder why he wouldn't accept something like, for example, Chechen or Dagestani independence, given that they're Muslim majority, they have quite a different culture to, say, Moscow or St. Petersburg. Chechens, for example, have they've fought two wars with, with Moscow to try to secede from the Russian Federation. 
I'm not sure why he considers that indissolubly a part of Slav Orthodox civilization when uh, they're, they're definitely not Orthodox, they're Muslims, and they, they obviously have enough of a sense of independence to keep fighting against the Russian state to secede. This is where his cultural relativism, whenever it comes to effectively Russian imperialism, the wheels just completely fall off. Whenever it comes to why Russia should be able to invade Ukraine, why Russia should be able to keep Chechnya as part of the Russian Federation, the cultural relativism and the ability of different ethnoses within a multipolar world to pursue their own destinies suddenly stops being valid. When he starts talking about this, it, uh, I, I take him so much less seriously. He lists out like history of leftism in the 21st century. I didn't find this that interesting. I don't think we'd really learn anything more about Dugan's thought from, from listening to him list the difference between old Marxists, European Social Democrats, third-way socialists. Him talking about national communism was pretty interesting, and I think we probably should cover national communism sometime on this podcast in like in many ways it's just it's a fusion of communism and fascism uh just because one of those isn't extreme enough you 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 mash (laughs) mash them together yeah (laughs) so a lot of the latter part of this book too is him just repeating himself once you've read the first half a lot of the second half is him rehashing arguments against that that liberal idea of freedom from rather than freedom for problems with the liberal conception of the nation. He does have a brief part about liberalism in Russia, which I found interesting, where he basically says that liberalism never penetrated into the Russian consciousness. During the Soviet Union, it was constantly demonised as evil and foreign and something bad. And then with the fall of the Soviet Union, there were a handful of powerful people in Russia who demanded that, or demanded, who claimed that Russia was now liberal and held elections, had privatisations of formerly state-held industries and just used these things to enrich themselves, which, look, by all accounts, is true. That is what happened. And he says that there's no popular embrace of liberalism in Russia and very few Russians who are willing to suffer for liberalism. This was quite a... This was an interesting section because it's something... It's him describing his personal experience because he lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union and he lived through the absolute chaos that was the Yeltsin era. So I I quite liked this chapter. If people are going to read this book, I think this particular chapter on liberalism in Russia is is a good one. Have you met many Russians in your time in in Europe? Yeah, quite a few. There are a lot in um in Prague who like left uh don't don't want to go back. Do you get the sense of uh yeah, so that's the difference like, with the Russians I've met yeah. is they've yeah. they've left and don't want to go back, especially don't want to go back now because they might get drafted. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, quite a lot of outbound. The, the, the Russians uh, I've met immigration, are immigration are on the whole pretty cool people, but it's a pretty yeah, select group a, of Russians whom I know. There's a whole influx of Russians into Bali. There's so many that like there's part of Ubud which is this town in the middle of Bali um, that has, like, the Balinese people that have started speaking Russian and uh, have, like, there's, like, a Russian supermarket. And, uh, yeah, 
the Russians that I met in Bali seem to be nice people. Um, but I have a feeling that a lot of um, the people who maybe have the resources to get the fuck out of Russia right now, or like go say over the last like five, 10 years or whatever, um, <clears throat> are like, who's it leaving behind? It's leaving behind people who I, who maybe like can't get out of the situation and the people who want the situation. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. pretty dire. Looks pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah, or you have the worst combination of people who have the resources to get out because they don't want to suffer for the situation but support the situation nonetheless. Like a lot of the oh, oligarchs yeah. have left. Like, yeah, like a brand yeah, yeah, or yeah. absolute worms like that. Yeah, actually, I, I was looking at this super yacht yesterday. It's the world's uh, largest um, sail, non, like non-motor um a sailing boat in the world. It was $600 million to construct. It's owned by this uh, Russian billionaire who's, uh, who is like the owner and CEO of like one of the world's largest fertilizer companies. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's like the size of like a football field. Um, and that got seized <laughs> in, in, the, in a, yeah, recently. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It looks like a fucking spaceship with sails on it. <laughs> Being docked. 600 million, 600 million bucks. Yeah, it's crazy. The wealth that came out of the oligarchy, the sort of pseudo-nationalization or whatever the fuck happened to... I don't know the exact history. Like the uh, differing up of um, the nation's like resources. Yeah, I only have a I have a fairly poor understanding of it. It was something to do with when formerly national companies were privatized, each citizen I think yeah. was given a certain number of coupons which which gave them a right to shares or some portion of these industries and very well-connected people, politically well-connected people with the former communist regime because a lot of those officials remained in power. Not not yeah. just in post-Soviet Russia, but in in many post-communist countries. Like a lot of those communist officials, some of them still are in power in Czech Republic, for example. Although fortunately fewer. Yeah. Although one of the presidential candidates for the upcoming election is a former STB agent, which is always good. Great. <laughs> uh, so well-connected well connected people were able to collect these coupons, which gave them rights to shares in these companies or a claim on these companies and they also bought them from people so basically just gave people cash in return for these coupons and so they were able to just buy up these incredibly lucrative companies at absolute bargain basement rates mm. it's much more complex than that and i'm probably not doing it justice but i think that's the general idea of how um a lot of the russian oligarchs got their wealth like they didn't get their wealth through through their ability to make things they got their wealth through being leeches leeches and being able to survive in quite a dangerous political environment yeah it's pretty uh not really the sort of system that you want to i mean there's always like holes like drawbacks in different social systems but a system that it sounds like it's to be in power and to be successful is like largely based on character traits that seem um, non-productive. Is uh, probably not a good long-term thing. 
for a society. But I guess no, we'll see it's how not, Russia goes. Pref- Rus- Russian rule they... is almost invariably a, a disaster. I know plenty of people here who've yeah. lived through communism and then lived through capitalism, and they know which one's better. Like my father-in-law remembers the 1968 invasion of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Hopefully, and hopefully, said, like, yeah, everything got way worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like, I think anyways. this is ultimately the most compelling argument against Dugan's Dugan's vision of a multipolar multipolar world. Because when he talks about multipolarity, what he really means is he wants the Americans to step back so his team can kick the shit out of Poland and Czech Republic and Slovakia and Romania and Hungary and Ukraine and all the countries around it. Because as soon as a Russian soldier has stepped foot for a second on any piece of land, Russian nationalists or Russia stands start claiming that it's indissolubly a part of historical Russia. That's what he's... At times he offers himself a fig leaf of saying, oh, I want other cultures to be able to express themselves independently. But then in terms of the things he supports, like the war on Ukraine, like the war in Georgia... It so just really shows that it's complete yeah, bullshit. Like it's it's, it's just completely insincere. Yeah, it's completely insincere. At which point it becomes like cynical, right? <laughs> yeah, and look, I'm sorry if there are Russian people listening who don't like this, but Russian governance fucking sucks. I mean, you look at I think it's the portion of formerly Finland called Karelia, which was taken during Stalin's time during the two Russo-Finnish wars. It was part of Finland with a similar standard of living to Finland, and then Russia annexed it. And now you look at the quality of life in that part of newly Russia, formerly Finland, versus the rest of Finland, and it just fucking sucks. Like, obviously the Finns govern better because it's not nearly as kleptocratic a system of government. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it's a pain in the ass. In this part of the world, it's a constant problem having to stop the Russians getting a bit funny and invading everyone. That regime has probably had a net negative effect on the world. Alexander Dugan provides a compelling Heideggerian explanation as to why it's actually a good thing. Yeah, it's a new form of new form of it. Revolution is an empirical fact. This means that revolution was, is, and will be. <laughs> I mean, you could just say something's just a fact. <laughs> this is a fact. <laughs> and he, the I'm right. Why he says it's a fact. <laughs> fucking weird. Like he just says, he quotes some guy. Arnold Galen, I hadn't heard of him, saying that humans are fundamentally insufficient. So our core is of insufficiency. And so we define ourselves more by what we're not than what we are. As such, we focus on revolution as a statement of something that we're not. He says instead of being a statement for a future political order, revolutions are more often a statement against the current order. And I don't think that's entirely wrong. I think there's definitely something to that. However... I don't think it's because of a core of insufficiency to humanity. He then says that striving against the present, yeah, so because of that we strive against the present rather than plan for a concrete new order. And a human only becomes truly human during revolutionary time, this, this rupture where humans can really define themselves against something, and this fills the inconsistency. He then says all other times anti-time, apart from the time of revolutions i'm not sure i guess by acting in a revolution we in some way resolve this insufficiency and so briefly are less insufficient therefore revolutions are inevitable i found this line of reasoning I've got this quote 
this quote, uh, the rest of time is, uh, is essentially asleep waiting for revolution. The rest of time is anti-time that separates two revolutions. It is a moment of break and this anti-time is maximally alienated from one. During this dreaming period between two revolutions, one considers his identity as positive. That means he starts to associate himself not with deficiency, but with something present. According to Heidegger, this exact condition is defined as unauthentic existence. One does not live as part of his existence. He is being replaced with das man, and genuine human existence, Dasein, is absent. Dasein is revealed only in revolution the rest of time. This is extremely Hegelian, hey? Like Hegel was saying like, you know, like this, the spirit of a state uh, asserts its position and its reality on the stage of history through war is advocating like total war. It's almost like the same thing. I wonder if Marx had a similar thinking about like class consciousness being realized through revolution as well. There's this kind of like invocation of authenticity for like warmongering basically <laughs> it's not the most warmongering sort of person that we've read but yeah <laughs> he's definitely a warmonger outside of his academic pursuits though maybe it's just this book maybe his other books are more warmongery yeah and his public statements however unfortunately in postmodernity, you can't have a revolution Postmodernity replaces people with simulacra of people, with these simulated people. And therefore, any sort of revolution they would seek to undertake is also a simulated revolution and not a true revolution. Therefore, postmodernity can never be overthrown from within the context of postmodernity. The only way to defeat postmodernity is by inventing a wholly new paradigm and then waging revolutionary war upon postmodernity from the position of that new paradigm. I'm not sure, really sure what this would look like. I, get, I think what he's effectively saying is just you come up with a new idea to motivate people for revolution, but saying it in a really strange way. Yeah, I wonder if somebody wanted to actually go through and pull out what he's saying and write it like a normal person if any of it would actually make sense. Maybe he's saying on some level, like a lot of these constructs that we have, whether it's revolution or some of the other things, like they're so, um, what is it? They're almost uh, obliterated or something by the uh, ubiquitous background fuzz of liberalism <laughs> and all that sort of stuff that like coming up with concepts inside of that social structure are almost like meaningless. We have to think like innovate beyond that. Am I even making any sense? I don't know. <laughs> I think the project you're proposing makes sense and I'm sure someone could go through and write this in a less convoluted way. However, I, I still don't think it would make sense. I think it would be more clear what Dugan is saying if that were... No, no, no. I still really disagree with it, but, but I guess... It, it, like it's still been at core nonsense. Like, ultimately, <laughs> this, isn't a fun, this isn't a problem of delivery, although his delivery is not great. It's more, a more fundamental problem of his thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think there's probably not too much more to go on because... There's a lot of there's a lot more stuff on how 
the non-Western world like, should unite and destroy the West. He's got a very yeah. the enemy of my enemy is my friend view of the world in that if two cultures are not Western, then they should work together to destroy the West because they couldn't possibly have any disagreements with each other that would preclude them from fighting the West as allies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there, there, there's constant railing against the fact that America is very powerful and more, more powerful than Russia. That seems to be the primary motivating force behind this book. I think this he saw that is. there's a bigger kid on the block than his team. It's mainly just propaganda. I think if you just read the last chapter, if you read like if you wanted to read this book to get his ideas, you'd read like the first couple of chapters and the last chapter, and you'd be all right. And if you just wanted zaniness, like the middle stuff, <laughs> if you just wanted to like read some crazy shit, yeah, I'd say actually if people want to get want to get a feel for his ideas don't bother reading the entire book read the appendices at the back because he actually explains himself much more clearly here and it gives you a good taste of what he's talking about in the appendices apart from one section on the domination of logos as opposed to chaos in western philosophy stretching back to the ancient greek philosophers that is different to what he's said in the rest of the book. But apart from that, everything is a restatement of things that have come before. However, it's more clear. And might is, is probably just a much better reading experience for someone who's unacquainted with Dugan's thought. Yeah, he says, uh, so we need to unite the right, the left, and the world's traditional religions in a common struggle against the common enemy. Social justice, national sovereignty, and traditional values are the three main principles of the fourth political theory. It is not easy to put together such a varied alliance, but we must try if we want. So he's, he kind of is saying the positive content of the fourth political theory without actually committing to anything. <laughs> well, I made a stuff, list because like, I was reading through this. How about I read through the list I made of the things that he said were features of the fourth political theory? I made a, I wrote down these things. So he says... Features of the fourth political theory. Multipolar world. Rejection of racism. As we've discussed, racism basically means everything for him. Cultural relativism. The ethnos could be the historical subject. There is freedom for groups, but not individuals. The bearer of freedom will not be the individual, but Dasein. The historical subject will be Dasein. The important question will be whether existence is authentic or inauthentic in a Heideggerian sense. He rejects the monotonic process. It will be non-modernistic. It will allow for progress and modernization, but in a culturally relative sense. The progress applies within a culture's specific framework and is not universal. It will have a societally dependent conception of reversible time. It will entail an end to the dualism of subject and object, intention and realisation, which, moder which modern philosophy, politics and modernity itself are based on, and this will be achieved through Dasein being the historical subject. It should be grown from the root from which theory and practice spring as a duality. Again, that's, I think, because it'll be rooted in Dasein, which sits anterior to this duality. The theory of gender will be based on things that are discarded by the classical political theories. For example, non-white, non-adult, and insane 
political subjects, recognises the world as multipolar, a collection of interacting civilizations. It opposes conflict between religious groups, unless those religious groups are uniting to destroy post-modernity. It advocates for a united front of all opposed to the West and modernity or post-modernity. For example, the right, the left, religious groups, traditional groups, nationalist groups. And it escapes pure logos by considering pre-ontological chaos. And that's something that we haven't really discussed. I can describe that if you want, but it's pretty wacky. And it's in one of the it's in the last of the appendices, I think, if people really yeah, want to learn why don't you that. just give it a go? Might as well. What's what's pre-ontological chaos? So basically he It's a cool set of words to put together. Yeah. So he gets really Evolian here. So what he says is that that Western philosophy, really from the time of Plato and Heraclitus, has purely focused on logos. So he splits the world into logos and chaos. So chaos is this continuously generative urge or or material that whose primary feature is inclusivity. It encompasses everything. And logos as opposed to chaos. Oh, and I should add, logos, uh, chaos is feminine. Logos is masculine. And it's central. What really defines logos is that it orders things and, and walls things off from each other. It, imp- it imposes a structure. And Western philosophy has focused purely on logos. On, um, on this hierarchical re- structuring of reality. And he says without chaos, because chaos is generative and logos is not, logos degrades. And we're now at the end point where logos has almost completely degraded. And the only way really for logos to be revitalized is through chaotic logos. So because chaos is... is is all-encompassing. It doesn't exclude things, whereas Logos's essence is exclusion. Within Chaos is Logos, because it embraces everything. But unlike Logos without Chaos, this chaotic Logos is constantly revitalized as it is part of Chaos, and Chaos constantly revitalizes itself. So what he's saying is that the fourth political theory needs to rescue Logos by embracing a chaotic logos like it's with within as a self-contained intellectual system if you just accept all his definitions of logos and chaos and things i guess it kind of makes sense but then as soon as you step outside of it and say okay why why it stops making sense but that is a feature of the fourth political theory i think uh jordan peterson would embrace that yeah, probably. I've heard I've heard this uh, this um, dichotomy in quite a few places between logos and chaos, the two being respectively masculine and feminine. I'm just not sure why I should believe it. Yeah, some people call it like metaphysics. That well, some part of it metaphysics is like what is the ground of being, what is the ground, what's what's beyond. What's the generative substance out of which the physical reality comes? And <clears throat> some people might say it's like chaos and logos or something like that. Mm, I think those sorts of claims or explanations are just like outside, almost uh, almost intentionally outside the realm of 
falsification or verification. And yeah, I think fairly explicitly because they would say that falsification is an expression of pure logos. Yeah, but I, I guess the, the like the, my only concern with thinking like those like those sorts of ideas is like, well, then you could just adopt any idea and say it's outside the realm yeah. of um, logos, and then you can just think whatever you want. And there's no constraints. Like, I, I really think that people don't, like, value enough, like, putting some constraining principles on the way that you think is actually, like, really helpful. <laughs> because... <laughs> Imposing some but, sort of structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if for no other reason than just, like, it's very useful to, like, have some causal power in the world. You know, like, like ideas, like... Ideas, especially ones that contain truth, have causal power. A really good example of that is like ideas around like how to, like what are electrons, how to move them, and how do we transfer energy using the motion of electrons through metals. Like that stuff means that like of the nine planets in our solar system, only one of them is glistening in the abyss on the side that faces away from the sun. Like that's a lot of causal power, <laughs> and um, you know that was because like Maxwell constrained his thinking, <laughs> not because he just thought whatever the fuck he wanted. <laughs> he said whatever the fuck he wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas like the alchemists and the astrologists, they said whatever the fuck they wanted. Didn't get them anywhere for thousands of years. So I just think like again, going back to the associate, associate, associative thinking, like it can be really interesting if you're doing like fiction writing or coming up with stories or if you, you're high and you just want to have fun with fucking crazy thoughts and stuff. Um, it's, it's great. But then if you want to talk about like, okay, geopolitics or something, <laughs> like surely we need people who are a little bit more like cogent than people, than like Dugan, <laughs> a little bit less free associative. Would you recommend this book? Uh, no. Because, at least from my perspective, I'm happy that I've, like, I'm not disappointed that I've read it because it, I don't know if this is actually the view of people in the Kremlin, but certainly Dugan is associated with people in the Kremlin. So maybe some people there think this, or at least yeah. like his ends. Uh, I, doubt, I doubt in the Kremlin there's a, a coterie of Heideggerians making decisions, but... no. At, at least his goals regarding multipolarity and things like that are probably fairly widely held in the Kremlin. So it's good from that perspective to read from someone who might represent parts of the ruling class of a hostile state, but I don't feel like I, um, my I perspective on the world it. has really changed from coming across his metaphysical justifications for why we need the fourth political theory. I would never recommend this to anybody. Except names. Oh, really? Shout out to names. <laughs> I'd, re- I'd recommend probably the first chapter and the appendices. Like, people can just download this f- for free. I wouldn't recommend spending money on it. I don't think it's worth money, but it's probably worth half an hour of your time. Maybe it's also kind of a zoological case study in, like, what Heidegger and his ilk can do to the human mind. They can yeah, break what you. too much, what Heidegger abuse can do to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is worse than, like, the ravings of ice addicts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot uh, of... Nah, I mean, they are just, they are just a too lot harsh. 
of the nonsense. I really fucking hate this guy. (laughs) 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 I'm not being very forgiving on this one. (laughs) I haven't been very generous to Mr. Heidegger. You've done good, Jack. You've done good on this one. Dugan doesn't make it easy to be forgiving of him, especially considering, like... Czech Republic currently has what four hundred, three, four hundred thousand Ukrainian refugees in it, in a country of ten and a half million. Like the the effects of Alexander Dugin's desires are being very much felt here. Yeah, ideas have power, people. Like we we do have, like we're helping support a woman and her child who are refugees, and her her apartment got fucking blown up with a missile. Recently, like the effects of this man's worldview are apparent. Yeah, like her her husband is literally fighting the Russians. Like he's actually a soldier. So it's yeah. We we can laugh at this man's wacky metaphysics, but the things he's proposing, I think, make him a real bastard. <laughs> yeah, I think that could be said about a number of the uh, people that we've reviewed for the show. Yeah, but most of them were nowhere near any sort of political power. That's true. That is a like, really distinguishing Julia, Julius Adler could whine all he wants about jazz music, but it's not going to make a fucking difference. Yeah, and that is a distinct difference about Dugan um, being actually like, <clears throat> maybe to, as we've mentioned, like to a lesser extent than he was like 10 years ago, but at least, like he's definitely had an impact. Um above like other modern intellectuals <clears throat> yeah no it's uh yeah so it's a. I, th- I think your description of it as a zoological case study is probably useful yeah uh, uh i think it's worth reading if you want to have an insight into how at least a portion of the russian uh, ruling class thinks maybe not the metaphysical justifications, but the the geopolitical desires. I think Dugan probably expresses, yeah, and it's useful for that. But I wouldn't bother reading the whole book. What did he call it? Russian, uh, but no, something Bolshevism, national Bol- Bolshevism. It's national Bolshevism, yeah. Which Dugan yeah. doesn't fully support, but he's sympathetic to. Yeah, he prefers yeah. his Eurasianist project. Yeah, all of which are very toxic ideas and uh, are causing missiles to be dropped on civilian homes. Anyway, the next episode might be might be American Psycho. So I've read American Psycho. Going to record an episode with Ed on that one. That book's a lot more fun than this one. Fukuyama. Hopefully, that'll be less less teeth pulling. Francis Fukuyama. Which Jack says is actually a good good writer, which is I'm I'm fucking I just oh which which Fukuyama are the you one reading? that you're reading is it uh, <laughs> the one that we put we put on the list <laughs> Fukuyama Francis Fukuyama no Sun and Steel no sorry Yukio Mishima there's a there's a there's a very different yeah, author. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat similar sounding uh, name, but not radically racist. different worldview. Not racist. Worldview. Not racist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I was mis- Sorry. 
We were talking about Fukushima. He came up a number of times. <laughs> Tried to launch a coup uh, in Japan in the name in the name of reinstating I I should read the emperor Fukuyama. as a god figure. <laughs> I just want to go and read like some nice prose now. You know, like I don't want to read necessarily like something really hard. I just want to read something that sounds nice and restores my love of reading. Because right now I hate reading. <laughs> After reading this book, I'm like fuck reading. <laughs> so. Sun and Steel, I'm really enjoying. Sun and Steel, so there's that. You're enjoying. Maybe I can go and read some. Um, um, I don't know, just just some nice prose. I'm reading Steppenwolf at the moment. At the moment, by Herman Hess. Read that. That was nice. Steppenwolf. Yeah, maybe I'll give that a bit. Yeah, of a it's read. nice. It's about a man who thinks he's half wolf. Because <laughs> really, all I'm. Uh... He's a philosophical furry. <laughs> philosophical furry. Yeah. All I'm reading at the moment is like a. Uh... Um, book club from hell stuff and bitcoin stuff <laughs> yeah which is fine but the bitcoin stuff isn't exactly like nice prose <laughs> so yeah no no <laughs> anyway alright um, we'll see you next time it'll be either American Psycho Sun and Steel, or one of the Defense of Dark, Against the Dark Arts episodes, depending on depending on recording order. Thanks for listening.